I, well, I would call it an outline in your bulletin. It's not so much an outline as it is just a title, and you're going to write the outline uh, in as you go, if you would choose, and Lord willing, that would be a help for you. Philippians chapter 1 is where we're going to be together in God's Word this morning. Last week, we were reminded of the work of the Word of God, as we heard from our brother Mike, and the work that God is doing through the ministry of the Gideons and the distribution of Bibles and just through the prayer of those warriors and the faithful witness to just speak the word and give the word and read the word uh, to people. In fact, I should just mention that one of the things that I thought was coolest, uh, Mike didn't give you the full version of uh, one of his opportunities to share the gospel when he was in the hospital, um, but in his weakened state, he wanted to share with this <clears throat> medical worker. And so I don't know if you caught it because he said it, but if you hadn't heard the, whole or st the, the longer story, you may not have caught it. What was cool is what he had her do was he had her take the Bible and her turn to the verses and her read them out loud. And so she shared the gospel with herself um, out of the Bible and uh, because the word of God is powerful to do its work, isn't it? Anyway, Mike, brother, thank you for that reminder. While we feed on the word as we gather every week, Lord willing, typically we also set aside the opening Sunday of the year to remind ourselves uh, that we need to eat regularly. Um, I, I don't guess anybody in the room just eats on Sundays, and so it is as well with Scripture. We need to be nourished on Scripture regularly, even Christ said, man does not live by bread alone. This week, we turn our attention to prayer. And while we pray throughout the course of every service in our gathering on Sunday mornings, we also typically set aside one of the opening Sundays of the year to commend this privilege of prayer again to our hearts and minds because it's like breathing for us, prayer is. This year, as we come to this date, um, we also are continuing in our study through the book of Philippians. We come to a prayer passage this morning in the middle of Philippians chapter 1. So we'll pick up there where we left off and at the same time celebrate and, um, uh, and note the prayer Sunday, the prayer emphasis on this Sunday as we come to this prayer of Paul. Scripture gives us voice for our prayers. It gives us language. It gives us utterance for our prayers. And the words of Scripture for our praying are so often so much better even than our own words. In fact, I think a sign of maturity is to realize, at least it has been in my life, I'm, I'm good at expressing what I think in prayer. But the more that I express what God thinks in prayer, the more that I realize that that's really what I think or at least what I'd like to think, and it helps my expression and my understanding both at the same time. Psalms, for example, the prayer book of Scripture, raise the depths of our soul to the heights of heaven and into the mysteries of God when we pray through the prayer book of Psalms and make them our own. But when it comes to praying for people, when it comes to interceding before the throne and inviting God to move, there are few scriptures that we can turn to that are like the prayers of Paul. In praying for people, there are few places in scripture that we can turn where we will see the power and the clarity and receive the help like we will in seeing the prayers of Paul for people. Philippians chapter 1, the apostle, after encouraging the struggling church in the knowledge of God's ever-present work in them. We saw that a few weeks ago at the opening of Philippians chapter 1. He now expresses how it is that he pleads for them before the throne from afar. If, if this prayer we find here in the middle of Philippians 1 is what the Spirit has inspired to be recorded for all the ages, for the benefit of God's people then, then might this not also possibly be part of what we should seek to pray, what we should seek to petition as we pray for ourselves and pray for others? One of the greatest acts of love that we can do for people is to pray for them, to intercede on behalf 
of the will of God for the sake of the good of a person. What a high privilege, right? What a priestly act we are given because of Christ's purchase of that opportunity for us. To intercede for the glory of God and the work in their lives is one of the most selfless and rewarding things that we can possibly do here on the face of the earth, right? So long as we have breath, we can intercede for others. So let's talk about praying for people this morning and let's hear God's word and invite that it would help us after telling them that he prays. Verses 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. After telling them that he prays for them, saying these words, Paul then lets them in on the content of those prayers. Pick up in verse 9, Philippians 1. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Would you pray with me? O oh Lord, our God, we ask today humbly, would you use these next few minutes to grow us in prayer? Holy Spirit, would you make this... Uh, a holy moment, an eye-opening moment, a soul-searching and a spirit-thrilling moment where you unlock for us the eternal mysteries of the ages and you show us the glories of what you are doing in the lives of your people here on earth and you let us see and grasp how we get to be a part of that through intercession and praying for people, Lord. Lord, would you grow us not only in prayer this morning, Lord, would you take this time and would you grow us in love for others because we can't produce it of ourselves, but you, almighty God, who are love, you produce it in us. And would you also produce in us Christ-likeness as we look to these words? Would you teach us to pray, to be like Paul, the intercessor, to be like Jesus, our great high priest and mediator, whoever lives to intercede. Would you help us this morning to be like the Holy Spirit, whoever intercedes with groanings too deep for words. Would you grow us and change us this morning as we talk to you, eternal one, and as we hear from you. Lord, this, this supernatural, miraculous stuff is what we ask, all for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. This morning, I'd like for us to, uh, to notice first one, one overarching truth that really stands behind this passage. It's there because of the context, and it stands behind this prayer of Paul. And then I would like for us to notice six petitions in this prayer of Paul for this group of people that he loves. And this can be your outline and my outline, these six petitions. This can be your blueprint and my blueprint in praying for people for how to pray in the Spirit's power for ourself and for others. First, the overarching truth that stands behind this passage is that God's will for people is to grow in love. God's will for you is to grow in love. God's will for me is to grow in love. It is the, the apex of virtues in Scripture. Love, understood biblically, is, is the sum total. Why does the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 start with love? Because many have said it is the overarching um, a character trait which, which really explains, which undergirds, which is the foundation for all the rest of those other virtues. Elsewhere in Scripture, Paul will say, you know, there are, at the end of all things, there are only three things that are going to be left. These three remain, and you know what they are, faith, hope, and love. Oh, but of the three, there's only one that is greatest, Right? Even here in Philippians, Paul himself is modeling love for these believers as he writes to them, as he seeks to rescue them, as he desires to encourage them. Even while he in his weakness languishes in prison, and as he looks into the face of eternity, he prays from, from the viewpoint of the throne for these. He is, he is expressing his love for these Christians 
in Philippi. And he's modeling love for them. He's already modeled it for them in verses 7 and 8. He says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart. These are loving words he has for them. So he's showing them love, even as he is speaking words of truth to teach them. Verse 8, God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Down at the beginning of chapter 2, he will speak of, if there is any love from your knowledge of Christ, then he will say in the very next phrase, so let your love be like-minded amongst one another. And he is showing them the kind of like-minded, selfless love. He's modeling it that he desires for these Christians, even as he's about to pray for it for them. Paul models, by the way, he refers to them, his love for them. A number of times in this book, he will call them uh, his beloved. Uh, a number of times, he will call them brethren. And on a few occasions, he will call them beloved brethren. Just to make it really clear, you guys are my heart. You're my nearest kin in Christ. My beloved, he says in 2.12 as he appeals to them and elsewhere. What's the point of all of this? Notice where his prayer is going to start. And this I pray that your love may abound. Why does he start there with prayer? Because this, of all the things that he could desire for them and pray for them, is on the one hand the apex and on the other hand the foundation. And so he's going to pray for them that their love will grow in certain specific ways. But he's praying about their love, not that they would just have it. I hope that you have it. I hope that you have more of it, he says, but I hope it is the right kind of love, a maturing, growing love. What stands behind this sixfold petition of Paul's prayer for the Philippians is that God's will is for you to grow in love, and God's will is for me to grow in love. And as soon as you say that to me, I am uh, immediately, consciously aware that I am desperately needy because I do not love well, well, besides myself. To love in a way that is Christ-like and spirit-led is a supernatural work of God in a fleshly human being, but what a glory it is. So this is what Paul prays, and this is what the Spirit of God desires for his people. This today is what the Father in heaven who loves you, who has adopted you through his Son, who has poured out his love into your heart by his spirit whom he has given you. This is what he desires for you and for me. And so we might learn to petition this for others and maybe even at times for ourselves. Six petitions. First, I want you to notice Paul prays. Paul prays, may your love mature in the real knowledge of God. That's how I'm going to phrase it. I'm going to basically give you a paraphrase of the six things he says. And it's not going to be rocket science, but hopefully it'll help you break it down into chunks. Because Paul loves to write in long, convoluted sentences, so hopefully you get bullet points to work with. May your love, Paul prays for the Philippians, may your love mature in the real knowledge of God. Look at verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So there are two things that he's asking them that their love will grow in. I think there's a bit of confusion in reading this passage sometimes. And, and my, my best take is I think even some of the commentators might be slightly off base on this. I feel arrogant in saying that, but I have other commentators that agree with me, so I don't feel too bad. Is... Paul praying that their love will increase. Well, sure, Frank, it says right there, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. If I stopped right there, then that seems the obvious answer to the question. But that's not where the sentence stops. That your love may abound more and more in two things, knowledge and insight. I think the point is not that Paul is saying, I pray that you love more. I think Paul is praying that you would love better. I think that's what he's saying. Oh, there, there may absolutely be times to pray for more love, but I think the focus here is a better love. So it'd be like saying, um, if I were to say, may your, uh, uh, I just lost it, may your, may your bank accounts increase, you go, amen. That's what I'm looking for. But what if the sentence didn't end there? 
May your bank accounts increase in generosity. You understand the difference? The fuller sentence isn't saying, I hope you get more money. It's saying, I, I hope that the getting of your money increases in something, right? And so here the focus is not per se more love, although that may be included. The focus of the prayer is that your love itself would mature, would grow, would superabound more and more. There's expansiveness in Paul's praying. He's super optimistic that the Spirit can do this in you and me. And by the way, thank you, Lord, for the optimism of these words because I need it. May your love mature. May it, may it abound more and more in what? First thing, what I'm calling the real knowledge of God. The word epignosis is the word used here. Um, the word gnosis or gnosis, uh, that's where we get Gnosticism. It was an ancient heresy. heresy. The word just means knowledge. Um, and it can be used good, bad, or indifferent. Entirely depends upon the context. You could have a good knowledge, a bad knowledge, or whatever. But I'm, I'm going Greek on you here because uh, this is the word epignosis. It's, it's a compounded word, and almost always, there might be one or two exceptions, but it appears a good number of times in the Greek New Testament, almost always, it has the idea of not just something you can know up here, but it's an experiential knowledge. Now, true knowledge in Scripture, a very Hebraic understanding of knowledge, is you don't know nothing unless the knowledge has changed you. That's a, that's a Hebraic understanding. That's a biblical understanding. To know something is not just facts. It's, it's impact. Epignosis just goes the extra mile to make it abundantly clear. In fact, the majority of the times when epignosis is used, it's used of a true knowledge of God or true knowledge of spiritual things. Now you see why I spent the time on that. What is Paul praying? He's praying that these believers would have their love mature out of a true experiential knowledge of who God is. Now you see how that dynamic can work, right? Right, because when you know God, it will impact your love for others. When you experientially know the love of God, you can't help but be impacted in your love for others. Our love for God experienced, not just known about, not just right answers on a theology test, but, but our experienced love of God is intrinsic to our love for others, isn't it? And Paul says, I pray that your love would grow in that way. Why is Paul praying this way? It's no, no mystery because in, in this little letter uh, to the Christians in Philippi, he is going to address their disunity. And so he's not just going to command them, hey, would you guys get it together and just love each other for crying out loud? Before he even gets to the commands, he says, let me tell you what I'm pleading for you. I'm pleading that you will know and experience the depth of the riches of the love of God for you. How wide and long and high and deep, right? And I'm, I'm just now quoting from another prayer of Paul in Ephesians, right? He prays like this all the time. That you would know experientially. And then, knowing the real knowledge of God, your love will now mature. Could you pray that for somebody else? I bet you can. And I, and I bet if you do, it'll change you and it'll change me, won't it? Lord, I pray you'd help this person to experience the knowledge of you in a way that changes them so much that they become a more loving person. That is a biblical prayer, and it's a pretty, I want to say darn, it is a pretty good prayer, right? It is a pretty good prayer. May your love mature in the real knowledge of God. Second petition, Paul prays, may your love mature in moral perception and discernment. May your love mature in moral perception and discernment. That's just taking the second compound out of verse 9. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. For the second time, and we're not even halfway through chapter 1, for the second time in this little letter, Paul connects the ideas of, of love and emotions and, and thinking and clarity. I love it. And, and then God made male and female. 
just so we could laugh at ourselves who tend to come at opposite ends of the spectrum of strength on this. And yet with God, there is no, no chasm between the two. Clear thinking and deep emotion are absolutely found in the Godhead. And it's what Paul prays for the Philippians. May your love, your, your passionate commitment to and overflowing emotion for others, may, may that mature in what the NAS translates as, lost it here, insight, right? No, discernment. Um, what I've said, mature in moral perception and discernment. Eisthesis uh, can mean insight. It can actually mean distinction. It has the idea of being able to discern between things. Paul actually piles up two, three, four different phrases or words about discernment here in this passage. Isn't that wonderful? That he, he takes the idea of love growing and he says, how does it grow? It grows in these discerning ways. This goes uh, along a bit with what our brother Steve said just a minute ago. Being able to do the right thing is not just knowing. It's not even desiring or committing, right? Um, my, my selfishness goes so deep. I, I need a supernatural help. And here it's the work of God to bring, to bring wisdom to bear in love so that I can know how to love well. It's not always clear even when you love. It's not always clear how to do it best, right? And you know what Paul prays for these Philippians? I pray you guys would know how to do it well. I pray that your love will mature in moral perception and discernment. How do we love? Well, I'm just going to throw out a couple of things that I think of in this realm when I think about it. And, uh, and, and it's good for us to think about the, the how question here. Uh, sometimes we talk about, well, you know, we're going to do this because I just think it's time and because this is tough love. He needs tough love. We're going to do tough love. And tough love is a real thing, and there is a time for real tough love, right? But it takes genuine moral perception and discernment to know whether or not tough love is really love of another, or it's just irritated, exasperated self-love. It's time for you to get tough love because I've had it with you, and you're not going to do this anymore, so we're giving you tough love. Well, that's not love of another, is it? May your love mature in moral perception and discernment. How about the opposite end of the spectrum? Unconditional love. We're just giving unconditional love. We're just going to love unconditionally. We're not going to say anything about anything bad. We're, we're not, we're not going to talk about any rights or wrongs. We're just going to love. We're just going to be there, and we're going we're to accept and embrace everything. There is a time for unconditional love. Praise God. The Spirit of God has shown it to us in spite of our sin for the sake of his son. There's a time for us to practice that sacrificially, Right? But it takes real moral perception and discernment to know whether or not unconditional love, at times, is just an excuse for being passive and self-protective. I'm giving you unconditional love might really just mean I'm protecting myself from doing anything that might make you mad at me. May your love mature in moral perception and discernment. What a freedom there is as we grow in Christ to get wiser in knowing how to love better. It's just, it's one of the perks, right? Because it's a, it's a work of God to help our thinking and to help our, our feeling and to uh, put constraints on our selfishness and to grow us in selflessness. Discernment in love until we have full and free and convinced and convicted selflessness in love. I want more of that. Well, it's not easy. Man, I could pray for more of that. Some of you might need some of that. Some of us might like some people to pray some of that for us. May your love mature in moral perception and discernment. Now, figuring out how, uh, what is the discernment here? It's going to depend upon the situation. How does love bring in moral perception into its manner of loving? What's well, going to depend uh, upon the, the situation, if it's a parent's love for a child, and it's going to depend upon that child, and it's going to depend upon the need of that day. Or uh, a child in loving an elderly, aging parent 
there is a, a moral perception and a discernment needed how to love well in that, right? Pick your scenario, trying to counsel a friend. Man, we need help for that, don't we? We need help. And, that, and that's why Paul prays, right? Start with prayer. We're going to circle back to this because God has put within the petitions of this prayer the very help that is needed for us to grow in discernment. We'll get there. Um, third, now through such discerning love, here's what we've got. Paul says, I want your love to grow in a, in a real knowledge of God, a genuine experience of him, and in moral perception and discernment. And then through such discerning love, here's his third petition. May you recognize and prove true what has eternal value. May you recognize and prove true what has eternal value. Again, verse 9, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. I want you to notice the so that at the beginning of verse 10. It's telling us that as our love grows in discernment, one of the works of God supernaturally that Paul is praying and that the Spirit does is that we begin to grow in recognizing what has eternal value. We begin to, in Paul's words here, this would happen so that you may approve. That means that we would discover and recognize, and then we would try and test, and in the end we would say, that's true. About what? That which is excellent, or your translation may say superior, or it may say that which is worthy. I'm just summing it all up. In Paul's praying for them, Philippians, may you recognize and prove what has eternal value. When we begin to pray in this way for others and for ourselves and we ask, Lord, would you, would you give them discernment in their love? Would you give me, uh, through the knowledge of more of you, your love for them? You know what ends up happening? Our love gets wiser and we get a, a more eternal perspective on what really matters. And then we go, okay, if I'm going to continue to love like I'm asking you to produce love in this person or I'm asking you to produce love in me, then it's going to mean not doing what I do naturally. <laughs> but it's what you've shown me. You've given me discernment. So I'm going to try that. The word here for approve means tested and found solid. I'm going to try that. It's, it's like a person would try out a new horse. Got a new horse? Going to go try him. Or a new car. Or a new gun. Going to go try out my gun. Or a dishwasher. Or a chainsaw. Going to go test it. See how it works. Right? But here it's a spiritual idea. Lord, you say forgive those people who who insult me and to pray for blessing. Okay, I'm going to try that. I'm going to test that out. Now, it may not always give the result that you or I might ask for, but it will always be what has eternal value, right? May you recognize and prove true what has eternal value. So let me go back to the three Scenarios I raised before, how about a parent loving their children? If you've done it for more than um, a week, then you probably have seen quickly the difference between what lasts and what's passing. And what I do naturally is not always what leads to what lasts. It might lead to what gives me the most immediate comfort what communicates my displeasure, but it might not be what has eternal value. And to grow as a parent, we should pray, Lord, help us recognize and prove true by trying it out and testing it and seeing that this is what lasts. If you've been a parent for any period of time, then by the grace of God, you've had those glimmering moments where the Spirit of God broke through and you did it right and you look back and you go, Lord, thank you for helping me do that right because I'll never regret the fruit you brought in our relationship 
because of helping me see what has eternal value. Not shooting for their behavior, but shooting for their hearts. Not shooting to win the argument, but to win my son, right? I mean, you can just spill over a million ways to recognize and prove true what has eternal value. Or try loving and serving as a child or elderly and aging parents. And you'll see, Lord, what's really going to matter in the end. I'm right and they're wrong and they're clueless. But that's not even really what has eternal value, is it, Lord? Maybe what has eternal value is just honoring my mother right now. And, and, and it's going to continue to be messy, but I just need to honor, or whatever, right? But when you do it the Lord's way and you pursue what has eternal value, that's the stuff you want to pray for, and then you prove it true when you see God use it, either to change them, to change the circumstance, or maybe, if nothing else, just to change you. How about trying to counsel a friend who's in crisis and love them through their stress? Maybe it's something they've shared with you and you're like, dude, I wish I knew how to change that for you. I literally cannot do anything to change that. I'm struggling. I'm dying with you. I love you. I wish I could change it. There are words in moments like that that we can offer that are, that are nice. And if our friends are good friends, they'll probably forgive us for not being perfect in the way we respond sometimes. But there are other words that we can speak that aren't just nice, but actually give life. To recognize and prove what has eternal value is to speak to our friends and counsel them in love and be willing to invest the time in listening. And maybe, maybe even it's not having the answer right now. And just expressing, dude, I have no idea what to do. I have no idea how to help you. And it's killing me. But all, but all I know is I'm here. That's all I got today. I will pray for more, but that's all I got. So through such discerning love, Paul says, Lord, let this happen so that you may recognize and prove true what has eternal value. Now, fourth petition, and this is really the climactic petition as far as how the structure goes. This is what everything is leading up to uh, as far as what he's asking in these believers. So, discerning love, bringing about uh, a recognition of what has eternal value. So now, with conviction, something begins to happen in, in my life, the lover, the one being prayed for to have this kind of love. So here's the fourth thing that Paul prays. Might all of this produce in you a growth in genuine holiness? Might all of this produce in you a growth in genuine holiness? That's what he says in verse 10, second half. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. All of that, why? Here's why I say it's climactic. In order, in order for you to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. This is the second time already. In the first 10 verses of this letter, he has mentioned the day of Christ. Earlier, he said, the Spirit of God is always at work at you, in you, believer, and he will never stop working in you until that day. And on that day, he will have perfected and he will perfect his work in you. Now, look, Paul looks to it again. And he says, on that day of the revelation of Christ, at the end of all things, at the reckoning of all, at the final judgment, at the fullness of your salvation and redemption, on that day, May you be able to stand in genuineness and blamelessness, in, in purity and unoffensiveness, in sincerity and wholeness. He puts together these two beautiful words um, here, and A.S. says sincere and, and blameless. I've just put it all together and say, might this all produce in you and in me a growth in genuine holiness Eilikrines is the word for sincere. It has the idea of the shedding of sunlight. Um, there's a good debate about the etymology of the word, and um, I won't go into it because it is a debate, and if you don't know what etymology means, then it doesn't matter anyway. Um, 
The point is, this is a sweet word about all things being seen for what they are. And what Paul prays is not just that you act holy, that there's an external behavior of holiness. He says, I pray for you, alecrines, a, a, a light shined from where God can see genuineness in your life, a genuineness in holiness in your life. And you know what's so cool is you can't produce that and I can't produce that. But the Spirit of God does produce that. <laughs> and maybe there was a reason, I don't know, why Paul began by saying, hey, take heart because the Spirit of God is ever working in you. I don't know, I look like a mess. That's okay. The Spirit of God can produce genuineness and holiness. And this is something that we ought to petition for others. Sincere and real character from changed affections. Having discernment in desiring to love well, growing in conviction, the next natural step is now it becomes character in a person's life. You know what Paul is doing here for the Philippians? He's praying character into their lives. Is that cool or what? You have some people you'd like to do that for? Sorry, I mean that in the most selfless way. How would you like to have the privilege praying character into people's lives, genuine holiness. Because the Spirit of God, who is pleased to answer prayer and move in response to the petitions of his people, has ordained it to be so, that you and I could be a part of that. What a privilege, what a glorious thing to pray that in people's lives. Fifth, fifth petition May the fruit-bearing presence of Christ fill you. Fifth petition, may the fruit-bearing presence of Christ fill you. So this is uh, in verse 11, but I'm going to start in 10. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. I think the right understanding of the Greek grammar here is the climax has already happened. The climax came in the fourth petition. Paul says, I pray that your love and discernment and conviction will change who you are, Philippians. That's a cool thing to have somebody praying for you. It's a cool thing to be praying for people. But along the way, we've asked the question, you're talking about discernment, and I don't know how to love well. And I'm not sure sometimes. You know what this fifth petition is? It is, it is actually a statement of a reality that's taking place already in every believer. And Paul brings it up here. He brings up this, this spiritual dynamic that takes place in every Christian, and he says, and this is your resource. May this help you. This answers the how question. How do I grow in discernment? How do, how do I grow in conviction? How do I grow in loving the right way? Answer, verse 11, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, I won't give you the reasons why grammatically uh, that, that is the answer to the, the how question, but it's there. So he says, here's the thing. You don't know how to love in a way that has real moral perception and, and good moral discernment. You don't want it to just be fluffy, and you don't want it to be overly harsh. And you want to know how to love right. Or you're praying for somebody else to know to have this kind of love grow in them. What is your resource? It is the living presence of the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his fruitful, filling person. It is being in Christ. And so let me take some very specifics. What is the righteousness of Christ? I don't know. Peace. When I pray, I find that the Lord Jesus Christ is not anxious. He's not wringing his hands. He is the prince of peace. His righteous, perfect character begins to, to wash over me. And I find myself more peaceful by the work of the Spirit. And that is the kind of thing that I can pray out of the fruits of the righteousness that are mine through Jesus Christ. I can learn how to discern what to pray for other people. And I just picked one thing. How about hope? That's a fruit of the Spirit. You think Christ had hope? There's a depressing guy who could never see past tomorrow, right? No way. He always walked every moment in an eternal perspective. When I spend time with him, you know what happened? His presence fills me up with his hope, right? 
It is just the fruit of his, his righteousness. He's, he's just being who he is. And his glory and his goodness and his truth and his conviction, right? We can go down the list of everything that Jesus Christ is and all of those fruits of who he is by his presence. When I pray, that begins to fill me up. And that's how I begin to learn what, what discerning love looks like and how to pray for other people. You, you guys, we, we can't get halfway through the first command in the book of Philippians without the realization of our desperate need that it is impossible unless it takes place in us in Christ. Um, many people have said the, the book of Philippians is the, uh, is the joy book, right? It's a book of joy. Yeah. But others also studying it have said, no, no, it's the in Christ book. <laughs> and the two are obviously related because Paul has supernatural joy for one and only one reason. It's because he's in Christ. And everything that he urges and everything that he prays, he comes and he gives us this resource in Christ. Let me just name a few. Paul will, in this book, command them to, no, no, I'm sorry, he will, he will say of them that they do hope in Christ. Paul, in this book, describes believers as those who glory in Christ. Paul will command them at least two, three, maybe four times to rejoice, rejoice always, in all things rejoice. Is that where the sentence ends? Praise God, no. Rejoice in the Lord, always. Rejoice in all things in Christ. I don't have to thank God per se for the tragedy that befalls, but that in Christ, he has purpose for it and knows it. I glory in Christ and I hope in Christ and I rejoice in Christ. And so the fruit bearing of Christ in you and you in him is that supernatural dynamic. And the spirit of God is big enough when you get face to face with Christ and you begin to see him for who he is, you begin to epignosis him, right? And he grows in you discernment and that becomes conviction and that becomes Actual change of character. Now you see, man, look at the fruits that you're bringing forth out of my life. And it will spill over into your prayer life, right? As you bring people before the throne. Uh, by the way, the famous chapter in, in Philippians 4, um, everybody's had a calendar, you know, or, a, or a, a refrigerator magnet that's got a verse from Philippians 4. You just have to. Um, and, and I will make fun of that multiple times. Um, and maybe you can pray for me to not be cynical. But in context, when Paul says, I have learned to be content, I have learned the secret, he says. I'll give you the answer right now. What's the secret? Answer, in Christ. Because the same thing he's been doing the entire book long. But what's so cool is he's saying, look, I could be in jail, but I'm in Christ. I can be broken living on the street and not have a meal for a couple of days, but I'm in Christ. I can have all the riches at my fingertips and have people bowing before me and honoring me and, and saying, oh, Paul, the great apostle, we're so glad you're here. And he said, none of it means anything because I'm in Christ. So I've learned to be content. And that's part of the fruit-bearing presence of the Lord Jesus Christ in Paul. And he's just exampling it for us. And he's praying that for these Philippians. And that's what the Lord wants for us. When we experience his character, his righteousness, it begins to form us. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 says, right? We behold his face as in a mirror, and as we behold him, we are transformed from one glory to another. I see his glory. I desire his glory. I find it attractive. My affections are stirred. I move towards it, and I want to be that. And even supernaturally, supernaturally and, and ineffably, in a way I can't explain, just seeing it begins to transform me. It's that dynamic all throughout. So that's the fifth petition. May the fruit-bearing presence of Christ fill you, he says. And then finally, his sixth petition, to the glory of God alone. To the glory of God alone. That's what he prays. The, the fourth petition is the climax of the work that, that Paul is asking for the Spirit of God to do in the Christians. The, the work in them. 
the ground level stuff. I mean, it's divine and it's happening. But the sixth petition is the step back uh, perspective of heaven, heaven, supernatural reason why. When, when sinners, selfish, wretched people actually selflessly, sacrificially, graciously, joyfully love with wisdom, you know what? <laughs> you know what all the hosts of heaven do? They stand back and they go, dude, that was incredible. <laughs> How did that happen? Because I know that guy. God did that. Ephesians chapter 1, three times in the longest verse in the Greek in all of the Bible. It's a waterfall cascading phrase after phrase of the grace of God. It is meant to overwhelm you and drown you in God's grace. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is, I think I have the verses correct. And three times, though there's no period, there is a phrase that punctuates. Three times, God does this for you, this for you, this for you, this for you, this for you. And then he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And he does this for you and this for you and this for you and this for you and this to the praise of the glory of his grace. And again, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God's work in salvation to save us is completely a work of God, to call us, to draw us, to open our eyes, to grant us faith, to make us believe, and to save us. And he gets all the glory. And guess what? How does it work when it comes to salvation? Well, salvation is a work that we have to partner in. But even so, when it's successful, who gets the glory? Well, me a little bit and God a little bit. Nope, actually, surprisingly not. <laughs> because my work is not efficacious. My work is not meritorious. M my work is not the basis. My work is just the relegation for him to do his. It takes effort. It takes work. It takes sweat. But it all is done based upon his grace. And in the end, he gets all the glory for all of that, too. So having said all that, I'll actually read it now. Sorry, verse 11. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Soli Deo Gloria, the reformers love to say, to the glory of God alone. He gets all the credit. When, his, when, when we are changed, his radiance is seen. And that's glorious. Well, Folks, I'm sorry it took me longer to go through that than I had wanted because I was too excited about it. Um, here's what I had wanted to do, but I'll leave it for you. Um, this has been super helpful for me this week. I hope it is a help to you. I actually tried it, and it has been so helpful. If we had time, I'd walk you through each of these six things, and I would just tease out, thinking out loud with you, find an adversary. Find an opponent. Find a person in your life who's a challenge and pray through these six things for him. It's life-changing, right? It's heart-transforming. You, you could just walk through and, and imagine, Lord, help her, help him to, to, um, to grow in love. Right? Just starting with the foundational overarching desire of God for every person in genuine love. Help Help him to not act in bitterness. Help him to experientially know you more. And if you're praying for a non-Christian, you just, you know, you know, form the words in the right way. They maybe don't know God yet at all. So that's part of your praying for their salvation. You think that might be helpful? Is that brand new? You've never heard of anything like that before, right? No. But these six things. Pick someone who might be a challenge in your life. And it's so sweet to pray that for them. And then I might walk through and tease out with you, Lord willing, um, pick a beloved friend. Pick an ally. Pick someone that maybe it's the person you love more than anybody else on the face of the earth. The person you would die for. And pray these six things for them. Huh. And that'll change you too. That'll change me too. What a joy and a, a pleasure it is to pray, Lord, may, may she experientially know your love for her in a way that transforms the foundation of her love. May, may he know discernment in his love. May, may he grow in understanding how to be wise about how to love others. That's what I want for him more than anything else. I mean, what fun it is 
to pray those six things for somebody else. And then after doing that, I, I would close by asking the question, are you a person? Um, because we've spent our time this morning learning how to pray for people. And maybe you're the person that you need to pray these six things for more than anybody else. I love John Piper. I've uh, listened to a number of uh, even his messages just on prayer alone. Uh, and probably my favorite thing I've ever heard him say about prayer is simply this. He says, I, I'm one of those people who tends to have like lists and I tend to pray and I'm systematic. And yeah, there's times I just pray as God leads and I'm spontaneous, but there's, there's systematic praying that I do for people. And he said, but, but I tend to um, do it this way. When I come to that time that I'm going to pray systematically for some of the folks on my list, he says, I always start with the most needy person that I know. So I always begin with me. I have found that to be so true and helpful in my life. I can, I can sit down and try and pray these six things for another person, and my conscience and my heart and my spirit are fighting with God the whole time, right? Because I don't really want that for them. I want something else, but I probably shouldn't pray for that. And then I go, Lord, I'm so desperately needy. I need to pray this for me. Would you create in me this kind of a love that has real discernment and the experience of you and the fruits of Christ overwhelmingly coming out of me and on and on? And that's a great place to be, isn't it? How do we pray? Take any passage of Scripture and say it back to God and let the Spirit of God lead you. That's a glorious discipline. How do we pray for people? Well, you can do that anywhere in Scripture too. But I think the Spirit would commend to us today the prayers of Paul and this one in Philippians especially, which is a super help. And the Lord make us intercessors, people who pray like this and we see the fruits of our prayer. May it be so. Stand with me and let's close in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we rejoice that you know the human heart so incredibly well. You who have created the soul and the mind and the spirit and you know exactly how we work. You have provided perfectly by your son and by your spirit and by just the perfect plan you've designed. Even to help us to pray better. Lord, teach us to pray this week. Would you bring it to the minds of, of your people as often as it might be your will to do so? Points from the prayers of Paul or maybe this entire passage. Let us submit and, and listen when you call us to pray like this or learn from this praying. Lord, I know you're big enough. Holy Spirit, you are big enough just to show us what you have for us in this. I know that I have barely understood this passage. I know that I have barely scraped the surface, but I know that you, Holy Spirit, using it do deep and eternal things in me and in all of us when we just come to your word and we come to you in prayer. Grow us in this. What a joy and a privilege. And Father, we ask for any who are here today who, who don't know what it is to, to experientially know the love of a father, who have not yet come to have their sins forgiven and embrace uh, the forgiveness that is in Christ. Lord, would you call to them? Would you make them thirsty? Would you remind them often of how how they have heard of how good your presence is. Might they even see and taste a bit of it through others who know you or through whatever means you might use in your kindness to stir their hearts that they might come, that they might not live a life damned and an eternity of damnation, but rather come to know your great grace and your eternal life that you offer freely today. Lord, do your work in all of our hearts. We praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for being